0: Well, let me invite you to turn in your Bibles to John chapter 1, Uh, John chapter 1 for our time of study in God's Word. Uh, This morning, we're doing a verse-by-verse study through the gospel of John, and as we continue in our study of this book, uh, we come to John chapter 1, verse uh, 35, and my goal Uh, This morning is to cover verses 35 through 51, and with that, complete our study of John 1. And the title of the message is, Early Word of Mouth About Jesus, Early Word of Mouth About Jesus. About a month ago, I had a brother uh, share with me how he came to Christ at the age of around 27, prior to that point, God had given to him a daughter whom he loved more than life himself or life itself, Uh, but his heart was broken as a father again and again as he watched his daughter suffer from seizures over a period of months, and sometimes his daughter was having as many as 30 to 40 of these seizures a day which the doctors and specialists could not figure out or fix. In the middle of one especially bad episode, this man gathered up his girl into his arms and cried out to God and said, God, if you are there, if you are real, and if there is anything good about you, you'll take what is wrong with this little girl And give it to me. He was willing to take his daughter's seizures because he knew that he was more deserving of such a fate than his daughter uh, because of his own sins that he was mindful of. Amazingly, his daughter's seizures stopped that day. And she had none the following day, which was a Sunday. And the man was blown away by the fact that the seizures had stopped and therefore was expecting any moment for himself to start having those seizures, so much so that he was afraid to drive. After all, that was a part of the deal. On the next day... A Monday, this man crossed paths with a complete stranger on the sidewalk at March Air Force Base. And this stranger, after greeting him, said, Hey, would you like to come to a Bible study? This man responded and said, Look, I don't necessarily believe in all that stuff, but I have some things that have been happening in my life that have caused me to have some questions. And this stranger said, no problem, go ahead and come and bring your questions. And so he did. And it turns out that this Bible study was through the Gospel of John. So this man joined the attendees of this Bible study in beholding Christ week by week as Christ is presented in the Gospel of John. And on the final day of the Bible study, the man who had invited him came up to him and said, so you have been coming over these many weeks and asking your questions. Now I have a question for you. Are you ready to call Jesus your Lord? Do you want Jesus in your heart? And the man said, yes, I want that more than anything. So he prayed then and there and repented of his sins and called on the name of Jesus as his Lord and Savior. And ever since then, that man, whom we know as Greg Walker, uh, who's a part of the Cornerstone family, has been walking with Christ and being a blessing to so many, including many of us here at Cornerstone. By the way, where is Greg here you are, Greg. We're so thankful for God's work in your life and the blessing that you are to us. We're going to find something similar happening in our passage this morning, wherein we find some men who are being led to Jesus Christ through the thoughtful ministry, the testimony, and the invitation of others. We're going to see five men in all who come to the Lord Jesus, and we can organize our study of this story around five word-of-mouth statements that are made about Jesus and uttered for the benefit of others. And one of these statements is made, we're going to see, by John the Baptist. Three of them are made by ordinary men And the final one is made by Jesus himself, leaving us with a passage containing five word-of-mouth statements made about Jesus as he gathers his first five followers unto himself. This is a wonderful passage of Scripture. The first of these word-of-mouth statements that we're going to look at this morning is, number one, John the Baptist tells John and Andrew that Jesus is the Lamb of God. John the Baptist tells John and Andrew that Jesus is the Lamb of God. Observe what happens in verses 35 and 36. It says, again, the next day, John, speaking of John the Baptist, was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked, And said, Behold the Lamb of God. On the previous day, John the Baptist had made this very same declaration, but he cannot resist doing so again here in verse 36, pointing these two disciples of his to Jesus and telling them that Jesus is the Lamb of God who would be offered up one day in death to take away the sins of the world. And observe what these two disciples of John the Baptist do in verse 37. The two disciples heard him speak, and they followed Jesus. Imagine what this moment must have been like for John the Baptist, seeing two of his disciples leaving him, to go off and follow Jesus. It's kind of the same feeling that we have had here at Cornerstone in recent years as we've watched some of our own leave us to go and serve Christ elsewhere. But this is what John the Baptist was all about, getting people to follow Jesus and not him. And this is what we should be all about as well. By the way, we are not told just yet who these two disciples of John the Baptist are, but we already know a few things about them just by virtue of the fact that they were disciples of John the Baptist. We know that they had repented of their sins and that they had been baptized by John the Baptist, confessing their sins and preparing their hearts for the Messiah, whom John was preparing the way for. So it's only natural when John the Baptist now points to Jesus on this day and tells them for yet a second time that he is the Lamb of God, that they're ready to leave John the Baptist and begin following this Lamb who would somehow take away their sins. And as these two disciples began to follow Jesus, things start off awkwardly at first. Quite literally, they start off stalking Jesus as they walk behind him while he's walking toward wherever it is that he is going. Observe what happens in verse 38. And Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, what do you seek It's wonderful to see how Jesus turns toward these two disciples as they were sheepishly following him. They begin following him, and the text tells us that he turned, meaning he turned toward them, and that turning of his countenance toward them changed their lives forever. The Bible says to us, gives us this instruction and promise, draw near to God, and he will what? Draw near to you. And that's what Jesus is doing here to these two men. If you begin following Jesus, he won't make you chase him down, and he won't ignore you. He will turn towards you and draw near to you and stand ready to address your deepest need just like he does for these two men as he asks them, what do you seek? You might want to underline those words, what do you seek? You'll be interested to know that this is the very first time that Jesus speaks in this gospel. These are the very first words in John's gospel Out of Jesus' mouth. This is He who, in the beginning, was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God. This is the One who created all that exists. This is the Word who became flesh and dwelt among us. This is the Holy One. And the first time he opens his mouth in this gospel, he's asking these two men a question. What do you seek? What would you say if Jesus asked this question of you in your first few minutes of trying to follow him? What would you have said to Jesus if you were one of these two men following him in this moment observe how these men answer jesus question in verse 38 they said to him rabbi which translated means teacher where are you staying john tells us that the word rabbi means teacher so in calling jesus rabbi these two men are already answering jesus question What they're saying is that they want Jesus to be their teacher. They don't want to come to him and impose their own ideas on to him. They want him to teach them what to think and how to live. And especially they want him to teach them about himself and about how he can take away their sends as the very Lamb of God. And then they say, where are you staying? And when they say this, they're indicating that they want more from him than what could be given to them in a quick conversation. Ultimately, they want Jesus himself. And evidently, they don't want to just fit Jesus Somewhere into their lives, they want to enter into the life of Jesus and walk with Jesus wherever he is walking as he goes throughout the activities of his day. So much so that they would still like to be with him all the way to the end of the day. And the next day and the day after, they want him to be their teacher, their guide, their companion for life. Observe Jesus reply to their question in verse 39. They ask, where are you staying? And he said to them, come and you will see. With this answer, Jesus is letting them know that they are welcome into his life. They are welcome to walk with him and to converse with him throughout his day, all the way to the place where he was staying for that evening. Evidently, This one who is the Messiah, the Lamb of God, has room in his heart and in his life for them. Walk with me, Jesus is saying, and stay with me however long you like. So observe what happens in verse 39. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the 10th hour, and the 10th hour probably is speaking of the 10th hour after sunrise, which would be at 4 p.m., the way that we reckon time. And so here they are with him the rest of the day at the place where he is staying. And what set all of this in motion was a simple five-word statement from John the Baptist when he looked at Jesus and said to them, Behold, the Lamb of God. You never know what a difference a single sentence you speak can make in someone's life. This wonderful development in these two men's lives sets yet another wonderful thing in motion, which brings us to the second word-of-mouth statement about Jesus as he gathers his earliest followers to himself. Number two, Andrew tells Peter that Jesus is the Messiah. Andrew tells Peter that Jesus is the Messiah. It's in verse 40 that we begin to learn who these two disciples of John the Baptist are. Observe what the apostle John says in verse 40. He says, one of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. So one of these two men is Andrew, As for the identity of the other man, John doesn't state his name, which likely indicates that this unnamed man is none other than the Apostle John himself, which is why he's totally fine leaving his own name unmentioned. As for Andrew, observe what he does in verse 41, he found first his own brother, Simon, and said to him, we have found the Messiah, which translated means Christ. Notice the word first there in verse 41, where the text tells us that Andrew found first his own brother. Andrew loved his brother, Simon, so much so that evidently he made a beeline to him to tell him about Jesus, to tell him what he and John had found in Jesus. Andrew didn't wait until he was a mature Christian before he started evangelizing others. Evangelizing his brother was one of the very first things he ever did after he became a follower of Christ, as for what Andrew says to Simon in verse 41, he says, Look at the text, we have found the Messiah, which translated means Christ, which speaks of Jesus as the anointed one, speaking of Christ as the anointed king, the promised king of whom the Old Testament scriptures spoke. Essentially, Andrew is saying to Simon, we have found the long-awaited Messiah King who is ultimately going to right all wrongs and bring in the kingdom of God that we have all been waiting for. And notice that he says, look again at verse 41, we have found the Messiah. The statement is true enough, though little does Andrew realize that it was the Messiah who had found them, right? And Andrew doesn't just announce this fact to Simon. Observe what he does in verse 42. The text says he brought him to Jesus. He brought him to Jesus. And the thrust of the word brought indicates that Andrew himself is returning to Jesus and he's bringing Simon with him as he does so. And I love the fact that Andrew does not just send Simon to Jesus, but he brings him with him as he goes to Jesus. And you understand that, right? Evangelism is not sending people to Jesus. It's bringing people with you to Jesus. Godly parenting is not sending your children to Jesus. It's a daily coming to Jesus yourself and endeavoring to bring your children with you as you keep coming to Jesus. And this is what Andrew did. And as they say, the rest is history, right? As one commentator says, what Andrew does here in bringing Simon to Jesus is perhaps And I quote, as great a service to the church as ever any man did, unquote. Because of all that the Lord ended up doing through Simon, Simon Peter in the days to come. You never know all the good that can come from just one person that you bring to Jesus. When Andrew and Simon arrive at wherever Jesus was, Observe what happens in verse 42. Jesus looked at him, meaning he looked at Simon, and he said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which is translated Peter. So Jesus speaks in his omniscience. He identifies Simon by name. And he first speaks of Simon in terms of his normal biological descent, speaking of him as the son of John. Jesus is saying, I know you, Simon, and I know who your father is. But then Jesus speaks words of destiny to Simon and says, you shall be called Cephas. The word Cephas was an Aramaic word which John, the apostle, tells us meant Peter in Greek. And the word Peter could be translated as rock, in English. Almost literally, Jesus is giving Simon the name The Rock, or as one commentator puts it, The Rock Man. That's what he's naming Peter right now at the very moment that he is meeting him. And what Jesus is doing here is quite audacious to name someone back in this day, was to assert authority over them and ownership over them. And Jesus does this at the very moment that Simon is meeting him for the first time. Additionally, Jesus here nicknames Simon based on what he knows that he's going to be making of him. So in giving Simon this name, Jesus is not only claiming Simon for himself, but he is claiming the power to transform Simon's character, and he's promising that he's going to transform him. This is a name of destiny that Jesus is speaking to Simon, calling him the rock. Any reader of the gospel accounts would observe that Simon is anything but a rock right now, right? And even in his three years of following Christ, Peter is an impulsive man of emotional extremes who puts his foot in his mouth. He can't seem to live up to his word. He does some good things in the gospels and says some good things, but then turns around and does or says something stupid and needs to be put in his place. Worst of all, after being with Jesus for three years, Peter promises Jesus that he would never deny him and that he would die for him if need be. And a few hours later, Peter denies Jesus three times with a curse. He was anything but a rock. But amazingly, after Jesus is raised from the dead, an angel is at the tomb, and he speaks to some women who are at the tomb. This is in Mark 16:7. Listen to this. The angel says to the women, "Go tell his disciples and the rock that they will see him." We are then told that Jesus makes a personal appearance to Peter, and a couple months later, Peter is standing in front of a great multitude standing like a rock and preaching the gospel and calling people to faith in Christ and even later preaching Christ faithfully in spite of imprisonment and persecution. My point is that Simon was not a rock when Jesus started with him, but he was a rock by the time Jesus was finished with him. And here we are at the very beginning of this amazing journey of transformation when Jesus looks intently at Simon at their very first meeting, and Jesus speaks this name of destiny upon Simon. In this moment, Jesus did not just see Simon for what he was in this moment. He saw him for what he was going to be making of him, and he does the same for you and for me. If you are one of his own, Jesus does not see you simply as you are right now. He sees what he is making you to be in this life and in the life to come, and he never loses sight of that. That's the kind of amazing Savior he was to Simon, and that's the kind of amazing Savior he is to you and me. Amen? Well, things continue to unfold in this passage as more men become followers of Jesus. Three are now following him, and Jesus is not done. This brings us to the third word of mouth statement made about Jesus as he gathers his earliest followers to himself. Number three, Philip tells Nathanael that Jesus is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. Philip tells Nathanael that Jesus is, is the fulfillment of the law and prophets. Observe what happens in verse 43. The next day, he, Jesus, purposed to go into Galilee, and he found Philip. And Jesus said to him, follow me. In the prior verses, we see that Jesus was in the southern area around the Jordan River where John the Baptist was, but Jesus decides to head north into Galilee. He finds Philip either during that journey or at the end of that journey. And when he finds him, he says to him, follow me. As for where Philip lived, verse 44 says, Now Philip was from Bethsaida of the city of Andrew and Peter. So evidently these guys very likely knew each other. The city of Bethsaida is just north of the Sea of Galilee, which probably explains the reason that Jesus purposed to go into Galilee in order to find Philip and call him to follow him. And we have every indication that Philip accepts Jesus' invitation to follow him because of what Philip does next in verse 45. Look what the text says. Philip found Nathanael. And said to him, we have found him of whom Moses in the law, and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Evidently, upon beginning to follow Jesus, Philip is not content to follow Jesus with just John and Andrew and Peter. He thinks about a friend of his named Nathanael, and he wants Nathanael to join them too, so he leaves Jesus, and in verse 45, he finds. the text says, "He found Nathaniel, which creates a nice symmetry here. Jesus found Philip in verse 43, and Philip turns around and found Nathaniel in verse 45. But then notice what Philip says to Nathaniel. "We have found." Him speaking of Jesus. And John, the apostle, is expecting us to laugh a little here. From Philip's vantage point, it sure felt to him like he found Jesus. But really, it was Jesus who found him and all of the men who are now following him. And it is Jesus who finds us. And notice the full text of what Philip says to Nathanael. He says, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Philip describes Jesus in four ways here. He describes him as the one about whom Moses and the prophets wrote, which is the shorthand way of saying we have found him about whom the whole Old Testament is written. Next, Philip gives the name of this one, identifying him as Jesus. And then Philip describes Jesus in terms of the hometown from which he came, describing him as Jesus of Nazareth. And then he describes Jesus in terms of who he is in relation to his earthly father, describing him as the son of Joseph, speaking of Jesus as a man who grew up as a son in the household of Joseph of Nazareth. And as glowing of an endorsement, as these words are from Philip to Nathanael, it's the word Nazareth that catches Nathanael's attention. Observe what Nathaniel does in verse 46. Nathanael said to him, Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Evidently, Nathaniel has a pretty low view of the town of Nazareth. And here, he doesn't just question whether one so great as the Messiah could come from Nazareth. His question is, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Interesting question. And what's so interesting about this question is that later, you can write this reference down, John chapter 21, verse 2. We learn that Nathanael is from the town of Cana, which was nearby Nazareth. And we're not exactly sure where Cana at this time was. There are two possible sites for the Cana of this time. One of them was about nine miles north of Nazareth, and the other possible location was less than four miles from Nazareth. Either way, it was close by. The ancient church father, Jerome, said that he could see Cana from Nazareth when he was there in that town. So with Cana so nearby to Nazareth... Some commentators suggest that there was some sort of rivalry between these two neighboring towns of Cana and Nazareth, with Nazareth maybe more off the beaten path than Cana was. Others point to evidence that there was a significant outpost for Roman soldiers in Nazareth during this time. So it's possible that the Jews may have viewed the city as unclean from the Gentile corruptions of the Roman soldiers who were stationed there some say that nathaniel has a low view of nazareth simply because it was so close to where he grew up and he just can't believe one so great as the messiah of the ages would grow up in his own backyard as it were perhaps nathaniel sees himself as the product of that same region and he knows what a sinner he is. So maybe he's wondering aloud if anyone so wonderful as the Messiah could come from a region that he himself is the product of. Whatever the backstory is here, which John does not tell us, Nathaniel does not have a high view of Nazareth, And he certainly doesn't see it as a fitting place of origin for the Messiah. So he asks, can anything good come out of Nazareth? As for Philip, I'm sure that Philip cannot believe his ears. Nathaniel hears his announcement that they have found the Messiah. And he gets hung up on Nazareth. And wants to have a discussion about the city of Nazareth and the quality of its exports. But to his credit, Philip does not waste a second of his time discussing the matter with Nathanael. Look at the very end of verse 46. Philip said to him, come and see. And I love the fact that Philip does not, on this occasion, let himself get sidetracked by Nathaniel's question. He just says, come and see. Philip seems to know the power and the beauty and the gravitas of Jesus. He seems to know that all Nathaniel needs to do is come to Jesus. And once he encounters Jesus, he will be left with the right perspective of Jesus because Jesus will see to that. So Philip doesn't go into a six-minute apologetic speech on the topic of Nazareth here in order to address Nathanael's question, nor does he think to himself, oh, man, I wasn't prepared for that question. I knew I wasn't ready to evangelize. No, Philip simply responds to Nathanael's question by saying, come and see." He simply wants Nathaniel to come to Jesus even with his doubts and his question, knowing that Jesus will take care of such things. Sometimes we feel like we have to argue extensively with people and answer all of their questions so that we can convince them to come to Jesus, and there's value in such engagements, and there's value in being prepared for such engagements, but that's not what Philip does on this occasion. All he did here was say, come and see. He kept the focus on Jesus, and he kept his focus on simply getting Nathaniel to Jesus, trusting Jesus to take things from there. And boy, Jesus does not let Philip down. This brings us to the fourth word of mouth statement made about Jesus as he gathers his earliest followers to himself. Number four, Nathanael confesses that Jesus is the son of God, the king of Israel. Nathanael confesses that Jesus is the son of God, the king of Israel So Nathanael comes to Jesus, and he doesn't even get all the way to Jesus before Jesus cuts to the chase and burrows right into Nathanael's heart. Observe what happens in verse 47. Jesus saw Nathanael coming to him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Literally, Jesus looks at Nathanael and says, Behold, a true Israelite would be a great way to literally render this. Jesus' point in this language is that there are many people who are physical Israelites who have Abraham and Jacob as their biological ancestors, but they are not of the true Israel. They're not sons of Abraham by faith, but Jesus here is pronouncing Nathanael to be a true son of Abraham, a true Israelite whose heart has evidently been circumcised by God himself. And Jesus also describes Nathanael as a man in whom there is no deceit. Such language could indicate that Nathanael was, by reputation, a truthful man of integrity, and he deserve that reputation. Such language could mean that he was a man without pretense, a blunt man who spoke his mind truthfully without mincing words. That's very possible. But such language from Jesus also could mean that Nathaniel was a man who did not conceal his sins, but confessed them and experienced forgiveness from God such that Nathanael could say with David in Psalm 32.1, write down that reference, Psalm 32.1, listen to this, how blessed is the man whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity and in whose spirit there is no what? Deceit. And you should know that in the Greek Septuagint translation of Psalm 32.1, the Greek word translated deceit is the very word that Jesus uses here to describe Nathanael when he says, in whom there is no deceit. With this thought in mind, perhaps Nathanael had lived with this kind of repentant spirit for some time and was a bold confessor of his own sins, or it could be that Nathanael was a man who had been away from the Lord but had recently repented of some sins in his life, and he is now no longer walking in duplicity and deception. And Jesus could be right here speaking to Nathanael's conscience and affirming his repentance and pronouncing him a truly converted Israelite in whose spirit there is no longer any deceit, no more hiding from God, no more hiding from man. Whatever these words reveal about Nathaniel, what Jesus says here reveals that he already knew these things about Nathanael. And think about it. Why would Jesus know these things about Nathanael? You say, well, because he's omniscient, and that's absolutely true. But more importantly, Jesus knew these things about Nathanael because Jesus was the one who had been working in Nathanael's heart and developing this character and transformation in him. So when Jesus says, behold, a true Israelite in whom there is no deceit, Jesus is speaking as the consummate artist, rejoicing over the goodness of his own handiwork in Nathanael's life, and putting a seal of approval on that work. Jesus speaks these words in such an emphatic and familiar way that it knocks Nathanael on his heels. Observe Nathanael's response in verse 48. Nathaniel said to him, "How do you know me?" And Jesus replies in a way that gives to Nathaniel more of an answer than he was looking for. Look at his response in verse 48. Jesus answered and said to him, "Before Philip called you when you were under the fig tree, I saw you." And speaking this way, Jesus is showing Nathaniel that He is the God of Psalm 139. He is the God who knows everything about us and who knows everything about our path and our lying down, and he's intimately acquainted with all of our ways. Jesus is the God of Psalm 139. When Jesus says, demonstrated by the fact that Jesus says, before Philip called you, Nathaniel, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. As you can imagine a lot of ink has been spilled by commentators speculating about what Nathaniel was doing under the fig tree and I get it because I personally really want to know. As I'm sure you do as well, we do know that the teachers of Israel would often encourage Israelites to spend time in meditation and prayer under a tree so it wouldn't be surprising to find out that this was exactly what nathaniel was doing in fact this seems quite likely perhaps nathaniel was confessing his sins under that tree perhaps nathaniel was confessing his sins psalm 51 style and coming clean with god under a fig tree And if this possibility is correct, it would make Jesus' statement about him being a man of no deceit all the more meaningful as an assurance that Nathanael is truly forgiven and can now rejoice Psalm 32 style, where David says, Blessed is he in whose spirit there is no deceit. Either way, the truth is we don't know what nathaniel was doing under the fig tree for sure but whatever it was it was profoundly personal between him and god what we do know is that he was under a fig tree right before philip called him and jesus knew that and jesus is now saying to nathaniel i saw you my eyes have been on you nathaniel long before this moment observe nathaniel's response in verse 49 nathaniel answered him rabbi you are the son of god you are the king of israel nathaniel doesn't say now about the city of nazareth uh, i got a question I don't think he got his question answered. I just don't think he's asking it anymore. Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. And Nathanael believes in Jesus just like that. And Philip is left thinking, I knew it. I knew that all I needed to do was to get Nathanael to Jesus And Jesus would take care of the rest. Nathanael's confession here is loaded. First, he calls Jesus rabbi, meaning literally my teacher, meaning that from this point forward, Nathanael wants to follow Jesus and make Jesus his teacher and guide through life. Next, Nathanael says to Jesus, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. In other words, you are the Messiah, of Israel. You are the son of God of Psalm 2, who will be given the nations as your inheritance. You are the son to whom we must all pay homage. You are the son in whom we must all find refuge from the wrath of God, and blessed are all who find refuge in you. That Nathaniel makes this confession so quickly shows how powerful this first experience of Jesus was, but it also shows how much God had already been preparing his heart for this moment. Nathaniel is not so much finding Jesus here as much as Jesus is finding him and revealing that he, Jesus, had already found him out and knows him utterly. And what I love here guys, is that Nathaniel, he didn't need to see Jesus do some crazy miracle to believe. He just needed to know that Jesus saw right into his heart and really knew him and would still somehow still pronounce him a true Israelite. That was enough for him. And at the end of the day, isn't this what we most want in a Messiah? Someone who will look into our hearts and know us utterly and forgive us of our sins and pronounce us a true child of God. Would not such a pronouncement from Jesus be the greatest gift that any Messiah could ever give to you? As for me, it would have been nice to see all the miracles Jesus did, healing the sick and cleansing the lepers and raising the dead. This right here that Jesus does for Nathanael is the greatest thing of all. It's the thing that I would most seek and most seek in a Messiah and find in Jesus. This brings us to the fifth word-of-mouth statement made about Jesus as he gathers his earliest followers to himself. And this final statement is actually made by Jesus himself. Number five, Jesus tells his disciples that he is Jacob's ladder. Jesus tells his disciples that he is Jacob's ladder. Observe what Jesus says to Nathanael in verse 50. Jesus answered and said to him, Because I said to you that I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? In other words, he's saying, wow, you're easy, Nathaniel. You will see greater things than these. Then listen to what Jesus promises in verse 51. And he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, and you might want to underline that word "you," because it's in the plural. He's not just talking to Nathaniel. Truly, truly, I say to you guys, comma, you plural again, you guys, Nathaniel, and all of you standing with him, you will see the heavens opened. And the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. As for what Jesus is promising here, he's clearly referring back to Genesis 28, where Jacob had a dream. Jacob was on the run for his life from Esau, and having, having deceived his father and stolen Esau's blessing, and upon being told by his father that Jacob had behaved with guile and stolen his blessing, Esau vows to kill Jacob, and so Jacob flees north, and after traveling for about 40 miles in the length of one awful day, Jacob lies down and falls asleep on a stone an exhausted and haunted and guilty man of deceit who deserves judgment for his deceptions. But amazingly, while he slept, he had a dream that was given to him by God. And in that dream, he saw a ladder reaching from heaven down to earth, and he saw the angels of God ascending and descending on that ladder. And through this dream, God was showing incredible, undeserved mercy to Jacob and seeking to comfort him. God was saying to him, as one commentator puts it, look, Jacob, do you think you are all alone out here? There is traffic between heaven and earth on your behalf. Let that comfort you, God is saying to Jacob. In Genesis 28. And it's then, if you read that chapter, that God speaks wonderful words of promise to Jacob, promising to be with him and to bless him. Jacob deserved God's judgment for his deceptions, and instead, God shows him crazy grace and kindness. And here in our passage today, in John 1, Jesus is saying to Nathanael and to his comrades, I am the ladder that Jacob saw in Genesis 28. I am the connection, the artery between heaven and earth. I am heaven come to earth, and I am the way to heaven. And in the coming days... You are going to see countless ways that this is true of me. It was true for the guilty Jacob who was on the run from the consequences of his sins. And it's true of any guilty sinner who looks to me for the salvation that he needs, including you, Nathaniel. Truly, truly, I say to you, Jesus says... You will see the heavens opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. And speaking of himself as the Son of Man here, you can write down the reference Daniel 7, 13 and 14. Jesus is speaking of himself as the exalted Son of Man whom Daniel saw and spoke about in Daniel 7. 13 and 14. But there you have it, brothers and sisters. We come to the end of John 1 and the end of this amazing and touching account of Jesus gathering his first five followers to himself. If you read the other gospel accounts, you'll find that Jesus is not done wooing Some of these very men, some of them are not yet full-time followers of Jesus. Peter and John and Andrew will be back to fishing at a later point in time, and Jesus will meet up with them again on the shores of the Sea of Galilee and call them to come and follow Him. And it will be then that they will more decisively leave their nets, and follow Jesus. But this here in our passage today is one leg in a long journey, as it is with us all, as Jesus is taking the lives of these men and slowly bending them in orbit around himself in a way that will ultimately redound to their eternal good. And end up reshaping the course of of human history. We learn a lot about Jesus in our passage today. We learn that Jesus is the Lamb of God. We learn that He is the one about whom Moses and the prophets spoke. We learn that He is the Messiah, the Christ, the King of Israel. We learn that He is the Son of Man, the Son of God, and that He is Jacob's ladder. The ultimate connection between heaven and earth and the rest of the gospel of John is going to unfold for us. How worthy Jesus is of all of these titles and how much he is worthy of our faith and our love and how worthy he is of us going out and telling others about him so that we might bring them with us as we keep coming to Jesus. Jesus is worthy of us going to other people and saying to them, come and see, is he not? Come to Jesus and see. Come with me to Jesus and see. And we can say this to people. Just come to Jesus and see for yourself we can say this knowing that Jesus can deal with them as only he can. And as we bring people to Jesus and, and watch the way Jesus begins to work in their hearts, we learn more and more that it is not we who win people to Jesus. It is Jesus who wins people to himself, as we see him doing in our passage today today in a way that only Jesus can. If you're here this morning and you have never believed in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, I plead with you this morning to come to Jesus and see what a great Savior He is. See for yourself how full of grace and how full of truth He is. See for yourself that He is the Lamb of God who can take away your sins that you carry around with you day by day. Come to Jesus and see that he is a Messiah who looks upon you, whose eyes have been on you all your life, and he knows you utterly. And knowing you as fully as he does, he stands ready, if you will believe in him, to forgive you of your sins, to take away your sin and to lavish his grace upon you and to change your destiny and to make you a new person and to declare you to be a true child of God, a true son or daughter of Abraham if you will believe in him today. For those of you who are saved, Think about, and even ponder this in your care group meeting this week, think about the fact that you came to Jesus at the very outset because somebody told you about him, right? You say, well, I was reading the Bible. Well, someone wrote whatever it was that you were reading. They took the time to do that and to testify of Jesus so that word could get to you about him and you could believe in him. So pay that forward and continue spreading the news about Jesus. It's the way he wants things to happen. Tell others about Jesus just like Andrew and Philip do in our passage today. And as All five of these men will go on and do for the rest of their lives. And I know so many of you already do this so wonderfully, and I praise God for your faithful witness and testimony for Christ. I would encourage you, Alvin's going to say something about this at the close of our service, but as you leave this morning, I believe they're in the lobby Uh, Grab a couple candles that you can give as gifts to others, along with some invites to our Good Friday service and our Easter service next uh, Sunday, and use those as a way of approaching somebody with kindness and essentially saying to them, come, come and see, knowing that Jesus will be lifted high in our Good Friday service and in our service next Sunday. I, I know I'm very mindful of the fact that there are other churches around uh, that can put on a more impressive show than we can here at Cornerstone. But I can promise you this. In our service next week, Jesus will be lifted high. Uh, and he's the greatest gift that we have to give to others. We will hold him high next week and so i encourage you to come and and bring someone with you so that they together can behold jesus with you and maybe just maybe jesus might use that opportunity to win them to himself yet he will be grateful to have used your and our word of mouth testimony in order to bring that to pass. so Let's pray and ask God, not only to help us to do this this week, but also in the, in the coming weeks as we seek to testify of Christ and point others to Him. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, You are such a wonderful Savior. I just... I feel so small in the face of your greatness. I feel so light in the face of the heaviness and the gravitas of your person and your glory. You are so awesome in majesty empower. And yet, in this passage this morning, we just see you walking and people following you, and you turn toward them and say, what do you seek? And you're given Simon a name of destiny, promising what you're going to make of him, and you're burrowing right into Nathaniel's heart, just as swift as lightning and leaving him confessing the truth about you in a matter of seconds. You are that kind of Savior who knows all about all, and you see into hearts. And and what's the most astounding thing about this passage is that you use us to go to others and invite them to come and see. And it is a staggering privilege for us who have been saved by you to have a role to play in bringing people to you, Lord Jesus. And so help us to do that, to be motivated not by guilt but motivated by the beauty of your person, by our experience personally of your goodness. And by your grace in our own lives, Lord, to go to others and invite them to come and see just as we have. In a congregation this size, Lord, there's someone in each person in this room and watching by live stream, there's, there's at least one person in each of their lives that they can go to this week or in the weeks to come and invite them to Jesus. And I pray, Lord, that you would empower our witness as we seek to do that. Make us a congregation of Phillips and Andrews, a congregation of evangelists whose hearts are so full from our experience of you, Lord Jesus, that it would take a freight train to stop us from going to others and inviting them to come and see this one whom we have discovered to be so wonderful. And if there's any in this room right now, Lord, that you're drawing to yourself, I pray that they would respond. They would, in the quietness of this moment, in their hearts bow before you and confess you as their Lord and their Savior and call upon your name for salvation and believe in you and experience Salvation through you. We ask all of these things, Lord, in your precious and holy and mighty name and all God's people said,